You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Herpes simplex virus, or HSV, is a dilemma for men and women in the United States. It's non-discriminating based on class, socioeconomic state, or geographical location. Though not clinically life-threatening, it is completely socially challenging for both patients and their physicians. Today to discuss this with us is Dr. David Soper, the Vice Chair of the Department of OBGYN and Professor of Medicine at the Medical College and University of South Carolina talking to us today about the challenges of herpes simplex virus. Welcome, Dr. Soper. Thank you, Lisa. So do you think there's a difference in the trend of herpes in women today compared to 10 years ago? Well, I think there's a tremendous increase in awareness with the recent seroepidemiologic studies that suggest that one in five Americans or at least 50 million Americans are infected with genital herpes. And the fact that 90% of these people don't know that they're infected really brings us home. I think this is a testimony not only to patients, but also to clinicians that it's a very prevalent infection and that we need to understand it and be able to understand the tools that we have to diagnose it. So let's talk a little bit about that. It seems to me that the cultures in a symptomatic patient have become very accurate. Would you agree? I would agree to a point. Uh, I think one of the problems with diagnosis is, as I already mentioned, that most people are asymptomatic. But in the symptomatic patient, the patient that has shallow ulcers, and this, of course, will depend on how far into the disease natural history the patient is when you see them. But the culture early on when the patient has a blister, a pustule, or a shallow ulcer has a, a very high degree of sensitivity. However, as soon as that shallow ulcer starts to heal, and particularly once it's crusted over, the culture tends to be falsely negative in many of those patients. It's for this reason that we now have adopted serology as a concomitant intervention and test in managing patients with symptomatic disease. Tell us a little bit about how you would recommend serological assays to be used for these patients. Well, we know that genital herpes can be caused by either type of herpes simplex virus. Of course, type 1 has traditionally been the kind of virus infection that causes the fever blister. Type 2 reliably indicates a patient that has an infection of the genitals. So in a patient that has a herpetic lesion on the genitalia, certainly culture would be the primary way of identifying that particular ulcer as being caused by herpes. But because of the relative insensitivity, depending on the history of this ulcer, serology should be drawn, and that serology should be drawn for HSV type 2 and for type 1. If the patient ends up with a negative culture, but a positive serology for, for HSV 2, then that ulcer was due to genital herpes. If the patient has HSV 1 serology that's positive and has no history of a oral labial lesion on the, on the lip of the mouth, then it's arguable but possible that that genital ulcer in the vaginal area may be due to HSV-1 type genital herpes. So, you know, the challenge I find when I take care of patients or they find out they have herpes, you have a positive type 2 culture in the vagina because you happen to catch them at the right time, and their partners tell them that they've never had any symptoms and they have no knowledge of this particular disease for themselves. Is the serological testing really something that could be helpful in that scenario to identify the risk of the partner? No doubt about it. First of all, I think we need to be very specific about the serology that we're ordering. 
these serological tests have to discreetly identify antibody of the herpes virus to glycoprotein 1, which would be HSV1, or glycoprotein 2, HSV2, because there's other laboratory testing available out there that the clinicians could order inappropriately. So it has to be a very specific, type-specific serology for genital and oral labial herpes. Secondly, the patient that you've just described where she has a new onset disease, her partner's status is unknown. By drawing serology on that partner, you can determine if, if he actually has the infection as well. And if you think about it, this would be a very common scenario because transmission occurs in an asymptomatic state. People that have genital ulcers on the penis or on the vulva are not going to be having sexual intercourse because it's going to be too uncomfortable. It's that asymptomatic shedding that's responsible for that transmission. And this leads to, to one of the greatest things I wanted us to review, which is that for a long time, people used to say, well, if you didn't have symptoms, you were not going to give it to your partner you know, more than 3% of the time. And I think it seems like we're shedding when their patients are asymptomatic or symptomatic and that their partners are at equal risk at this time. Do you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. I think the way I look at it is the risk of somebody who is infected with genital herpes of shedding is about 1% per day. So there's never a day that goes by that there isn't some risk that they'll be shedding, and therefore there's never a day that goes by there isn't a risk that that person, if they're having sexual intercourse, might transmit the virus onto a susceptible partner. So what do you tell the patient in your practice in how to reassure them or treat them in this kind of circumstance if they're with a partner who's never had herpes themselves in the past? First of all, this is not an uncommon scenario. A patient, I'm a gynecologist, so a woman will come into my office. She has a history of having genital herpes. It's proven without a shadow of a doubt, maybe by a positive culture. And she has a new sex partner, and she really cares to ensure that she doesn't transmit the virus onto this new sex partner. The first thing we would do, knowing the prevalence of the disease in our population, again, one in five Americans having this infection, is to test the partner serologically. It's got a great chance of actually already having HSV2 and or HSV1. And then we can sit down with a patient, discuss his serology, and discuss his risk. If he is HSV2 positive, she's HSV2 positive, then he's not going to be reinfected by her. And it's safe for them to have sexual intercourse from a herpes perspective and not worry about transmission. On the other hand, if he's HSV2 negative, then he does stand a risk of being infected by having unprotected sex with his partner. That risk is about 12% per year. And there actually are some discordant couples that actually never seroconvert, but that's unusual. I actually, in my practice, I've always found it fascinating that we have one partner who's known and the other is not, and condoms are not going to be completely protective in the circumstance, I believe. And then their partner never seroconverts. They never have symptoms. That's exactly right. So you know, we don't understand why that happens. It does indeed happen in some discordant partners. I think your comment about condoms is very appropriate. It indeed does decrease the risk of transmission. It doesn't eliminate the risk of transmission. If you're just tuning in, you're joining Dr. David Soper and I, who are discussing the challenges and some of the new trends and treatments for women who are suffering from HSV or herpes infection. So, Dr. Soper, we were talking about the transmission of 12% per year if a person who's affected by herpes is with someone who is serologically negative. Are you suggesting antiviral suppression for those patients? I am. I think that patients 
that have HSV type 2 genital herpes that have frequent recurrences will want to be on suppressive therapy, usually daily valacyclovir, to prevent recurrences, symptomatic recurrences. If they have a sex partner that is susceptible and seronegative for genital herpes, then they may consider taking daily valacyclovir to actually decrease their risk of asymptomatic shedding and therefore significantly decrease their risk of transmitting the virus on to their susceptible partner. If someone's asymptomatic but has this history, other than in the sexual connotation to protect their partner, do you feel there's a reason for antiviral suppression? I don't. I think that in a situation in which they're not having frequent recurrences, where they're not sexually active and therefore not at risk for transmission, I think that patient doesn't necessarily need to be on suppressive therapy. And you mentioned valcyclovir. Do you feel that one antiviral medication is perhaps better or more effective than another? I don't. The study that is most popularly cited is with the valacyclovir product, but both acyclovir, clearly generic now and less expensive, and famcyclovir can be used in similar fashion. Do you make any recommendations to the length of time the suppression should occur? I only make recommendations based on the practical nature of following these patients in my practice, and that is that they're on therapy. If they're on suppressive therapy to prevent relapse of symptoms, then I usually give them a holiday every year to see if they'll relapse or not. If they do relapse, I put them right back on suppressive therapy to prevent subsequent relapses. On the other hand, if they're using it to decrease transmission, I I don't think there's an end in sight. And the drug has been administered for even years at a time safely, so I don't think there's any caveats there. Do you recommend any clinical surveillance for these patients if they're on long-term antiviral suppression? I don't. It's amazing how much information we've gotten about this use of the antivirals in the HIV patient population. It raises in my mind some questions about the person with herpes and what other tests we should do for them. Are they at greater risk for HIV or some of the other STDs? That's a great point. And clearly genital ulcer disease, all the genital ulcer diseases, including genital herpes and syphilis, increase one's risk for HIV. And so a patient that has that diagnosis, particularly for the first time, should definitely have HIV serology done. Let me share with you one other scenario that I think might be helpful to the listeners. You're sitting in your office and in walks your patient for an annual exam, and you notice that she has a fever blister on her lip. And what is your responsibility, I think, both to your patient and to her sex partner in recognizing that she has type 1, in this case symptomatic HSV-1, of her lip? And essentially what I do with these patients is I like to remind them that HSV-1 disease, the typical kind that we find above the waist traditionally, can actually be transmitted below the waist with oral genital sex. I find that many of my patients who come in with acute genital herpes and it ends up being a positive culture for HSV-1 are surprised when I tell them that they have genital herpes, but it's due to the type 1 and it's due to oral genital sex. They may have actually even known that their partner had fever blisters, but did not know that they were at risk for that kind of transmission. So I think as far as serologic screening, as far as counseling our patients, I think it's just as important to recognize the patient that has oral labial type 1 disease and the possibility of genital spread as it is for us to recognize that HSV2 genital herpes can be spread by contact and sexual intercourse as well. I actually think that's an excellent point. I see in my patient population a higher risk of HSV-1 in the genitals than others because of the oral genital contact. I also think part of it is that often men don't utilize the healthcare system the way women do and are not aware of that relationship and so may not even tell their partner that that's going on because they have no knowledge that it's a risk. 
I think your practice is not unique. When looking at the medical literature on this, there actually are some areas of the country in which serologic and culture data suggest that HSV-1 is the predominant cause of genital herpes. So I think it's a changing epidemiology to some degree in many parts of the country. What do you suggest to patients who do have an oral sore as far as either medical treatment, suppression, or avoidance of sexual activity while they have a lesion? Essentially a very similar counseling session as I would with genital ulcers, and that is that it's certainly somebody who has an active outbreak either on the genitals or on their lip is going to be shedding large amounts of viruses and therefore increase the risk of transmission. They certainly should abstain from any contact, not that they're interested because of the discomfort associated with it anyway, but they should definitely abstain from contact. Then it would help if they could understand the serologic susceptibility of each other. So I think serologic screening and both partners to understand who's infected with which virus and understand that if one is seropositive and the other is seronegative, that means the seronegative person is going to be susceptible. And then you can discuss about strategies for decreasing risk of transmission, and that's going to be condoms with intercourse, and it's going to be valacyclovir or acyclovir or famcyclovir suppression in the patient that is infected, and then just the knowledge that patients are at risk. Now, many patients may go ahead and decide that the risk is not so great that they would avoid their sex partner or their loved one. And I think that that's perfectly acceptable as well. Particularly with long-term risk of herpes not leading to other medical sequelae, I find that patients often decide that as well. Do you anticipate in the, in the future of HSV research or treatment that we may actually have a vaccine against HSV? Well, we certainly hope to be able to develop a vaccine. And there has been some light at the end of that tunnel in that the vaccine trials to date have shown at least partial protection particularly in women with respect to the viral antigens that have been used. But it hasn't been efficacious enough to be able to recommend wide-scale marketing, and it's never come to the final market. So I, I think that there's more work to be done. I think that there can be an answer to that down the road, and I think that is really the basis that is needed to decrease this infection because it's it's almost endemic in the population, and the only way we're really going to get ahead of it is to be able to develop a vaccine. Well, thank you to Dr. David Soper, who's been our guest as we've been discussing the challenges and new trends in herpes transmission, care, and prevention. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit ReachMD.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.